So that's why we're doing this sermon series. Is that we might all have some testimony of growing in our understanding of what God's like and what his word says and his call upon our lives to live in a way that's more consistent, increasingly consistent with who Jesus is and what Jesus taught and what Jesus has done and is doing in the world and what he's bringing into existence in terms of his kingdom. I hope and trust that if we are, myself included, listening to God's word carefully, we all might say, how did we miss this? There's more of this for me to live out than I was before. And then we might go on from faith to faith and strength to strength. So we come to this series this morning, 117, Learn to Do Justice. That's what we've titled this. We've taken that from the text of Isaiah 117. And in this series, we have had four goals, really, four sort of things we're hoping the Lord will do in our lives as we think about his word. Number one, we wish to understand the biblical idea of justice. So we're not looking just to sort of grab onto any use of the word justice or any definition of the word justice. We are very much wanting to get our arms around the Bible and how the Bible defines that idea. And we want to do this in more than an intellectual way. We don't want to say we know a few more Bible verses or we have a few more theological ideas in our, in our tool belt. We want to apply what we learn. We don't want to be like that man who looks into the mirror of God's word and turns away and forgot what he saw. We want to be transformed by what we see in the word that we might become more of what we see in the word. And thirdly, of course, this will all reframe our pursuit of justice. So we will be after justice, not in accord with worldly philosophy and not in accord with the ideas of men, but Lord willing, we will pursue justice the way God wishes us to pursue justice, using the methods that he prescribes with the heart that he gives. And finally, we're praying that this might be a source of unity for us as a church. We're a diverse church in a diverse world. The aim is not for us to become clones of one another. The aim isn't even necessarily for us to think the same things at every point. I trust in some of the disagreement there will be iron sharpening iron. And so we all will be advanced in some way that's meaningful in Christ. And yet, despite the sort of disagreements or the, the diversity we might have, I'm trusting that if, if the Bible is our North Star, if Christ is our plumb line, we'll also find ourselves more and more unified in the deepest, most meaningful ways imaginable. So that's what we're after. And let me remind us of the ground that we've covered so far. We've basically tried to make three basic points from the Bible. Number one, we have argued that the blessings of pursuing justice are actually far greater than the risk of pursuing justice or the comfort of not doing it. We get to know God better. We get to understand the gospel better. We, we hear that divine approval from the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That filling and the reward of that filling. It's greater than the risk we take in pursuing this and understanding this. But secondly, we have argued that our pursuit of justice must be God-centered. It's because God is just and God works justice in the world 
that we too as his people, known by his name, ought to be just and ought to be pursuing justice in the world. In other words, one way we can think about justice is just as a, a sort of heartfelt, intense, earnest following after God. And then the third thing that we've argued thus far is that our very definition of justice itself must come from the Bible. That's the only way to do the right thing for the right persons to the right extent using the right process. Justice requires all of those things, uh, the right outcomes for the right persons and the, and the right procedure, which itself is just. And so that brings us this morning to another topic in this theme. We are in these first five sort of sermons or so, just trying to put down the theological floorboards. We're just trying to lay down some basic theology on which in the sort of next five sermons, we'll, we'll sort of try to apply to actual justice issues, justice topics, modern day slavery, uh, gentrification, things of that sort. So what we're doing right now is laying down the sort of theological framework uh, from the Bible for understanding justice. And this morning, I just want to remind us of what kind of world we live in. We can say many things about our world, but one of the things that's true of our world is that we live in an image-obsessed culture. You see it everywhere. There are image consultants who advise people on how to create or to repair their reputation or their image in the public eye. There are brand managers whose job it is to think about how to attach a message or a feeling to your brand or to help you develop a brand. They're fashion consultants who tell us what look to create, what particular style of clothing or makeup or jewelry is fashionable and therefore desirable. And Lord, have mercy on us for some of this is in the church. So much talk about branding and platforming. Psychology Today recently ran an article on advertising that began this way. If you think you purchase the goods and services you do based upon rational thinking, think again. Have you ever wondered why ads feature beautiful models, adorable puppies, cute babies, and hilarious gags? Recent research reveals we make brand purchase decisions based on the associations and feelings as opposed to the facts and stats. This conditioning can happen without you knowing. And it is a tendency so strong that it can make you purchase products that are actually inferior to the competition. This is so true that in the 1990s, I'm, I appreciate the Matlock reference, and so now I don't feel so dated. In the, in the 1990s, you, some of you may remember, uh, Canon Camera had an ad. You remember what the ad slogan was? They hired Andre Agassi, one of the greatest tennis players in the world at that time. The ad slogan was, image is everything. They were just declaring what so much of our culture believes. Now, here's the thing. I believe our culture's obsession with image is simply an echo of a much deeper part of our being. A longing to put into image something that seems missing in the soul. So I want us to ask and answer three questions this morning. This is our outline for our time in God's word this morning. The first question is this. Whose image 
should we project? Whose image should we project? The second question is, how do we project that image? How do we project that image? And number three, what does that image have to do with justice? What does that image have to do with justice? Father, we pray you'd help us this morning to hear your word, to understand your word, and to apply your word. Show us more of yourself this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take that first question. Whose image should we project? Well, the answer, y'all know, God's. God's. It, it would not be too much to say that the image of God as a theme runs throughout the Bible. We might think of the Bible's teaching on this point in sort of a four-act play, four acts, four scenes that, that sort of summarize this, this theme of the image of God. The, the first scene, the first act is we are created in God's image. We're created in God's image and likeness. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Now that's right in the first chapter of the Bible. Notice what we're being told about ourselves, about humanity, right from the beginning. We can say at least four things. Number one, that we are creatures. We didn't make ourselves. God made us. We exist according to God's idea and God's design. And beloved, this means we are not an accident of evolution. We are the product of particular immaculate, specific design by a holy, all-wise God. Now, the second thing we can say is that we are, we are not just creatures. We are also unique creatures, right? We are, notice, in God's image and likeness. That's not true of any other created thing. That's only true of me and you, beloved, of, of human beings. Now, so we must never, we must never believe the lie that we are insignificant or nothing. We must never let people tell us that we have no worth, that we have no value. We're the only creatures, every one of us on the planet, in the universe, that's made the image forth God to show the likeness of God in the world. It's like we are both mirrors and windows. So that when God looks at us, he's to look into a window and see his reflection, his image and his likeness. But then when we look at each other, we're like windows. You, you look at a mirror, you look through a window. And when we look at each other, we're meant to look not at each other and see ourselves, but we're meant to look through each other and see God. To see his image and his likeness. The third thing that this text tells us is that we have a role in the rest of creation. Let them have dominion over. We're stewards of this creation. We are caretakers of this creation. God has left us in the world. He created us in part for this role. But number four, notice this too. We are also gendered beings. Male and female, he created them. 
There are only two sexes or genders, male and female, by God's design. And in Genesis 2, verse 18, we're told that there's no helper suitable to Adam. He's incomplete until God makes woman. It is together that male and female carry out God's purposes in the world of taking care of creation, and it is together that they image forth God most fully. And so, sisters, you are not an afterthought in God's mind. You are not, as women, second-class citizens. You are not, as women, merely reflections of the men that you may happen to be married to or dating or interested in. You are, in and of yourself, an image-bearer of God, reflecting his likeness in the world. That's how God has made us. The most fundamental thing we need to know about our identities is not what roles we play. It's not what families we are part of, humanly speaking. It's not, you know, what money we have or don't have or education we have or don't have. The most fundamental thing for us to know about ourselves in order to be healthy in and of ourselves is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. That's where God begins That's where we should begin. Now notice the second act. In act one, we are created in God's image. In act two, we corrupt God's image. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve commit the first sin. And when they sin by disobeying God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin enters the world, death enters the world, destruction and distortion enters the world, and that happens also to us on this issue of the image and likeness of God. So two texts real quick, one in Genesis, one in James. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is after the fall of man and the sin. This is after the flood where God judges humanity. And this is what God says in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Or James chapter 3 verse 9. James there is talking about speech and talking about the tongue. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And we're going to come back to those two texts later. But right now, all I want to point out is this. These two texts teach us that we are still in God's image, but we are also now capable of tremendous sin. And everything from murder to speech, right? So now, as human beings, we're not just made in God's image and bearing his image without corruption. Now that image is corrupted by our sin. It's, it's like most of you, many of you will have curtains in your home. You put curtains on your windows. And you put curtains on your windows to do what? Well, some of us just to block the light. Some of us for privacy, right? Some of us wonder why y'all have curtains on your windows if you can see right through them. But, you know, you put the curtains on your window to, to dim the light so that less of the light comes in and maybe more privacy. That's what sin is like. Sin is like putting a curtain over the image and the likeness of God so that it still does break through. It is still there, but it is veiled. It is distorted. It is muted because of that curtain of sin. And because of that, beloved, we're separated from God. 
We not only don't reflect God's image and likeness, we distort it, we misrepresent it. And our sin has made God angry, rightly against us. If we are made to image God, and if sin covers and distorts God's image in us, then beloved, sin is the greatest threat to our being and the greatest threat to our purpose. Sin is then a self-destructive violence against the soul. It is a greater violence against our being than anything else in the universe because it strikes at the very heart of why we were made and distorts the very purpose for which we were made, which is to show forth the image and the likeness of God. Sin is not just doing a few things wrong. Sin is getting your very person wrong. I love the way Hannah Smith, or Hannah Anderson, excuse me, puts it in her book, Made for More. She says, we need to repent not of our humanity, but of of trying to root our humanity in anything but God himself. That's what's going on with all this image stuff. We're trying to root our humanity and our greatness and our value in all these other things. In our brand, in in our public perception. But we're meant to root who we are in who God is. That's why we were made. So we've gotten this broken. We've gotten this distorted. And that brings us to the the third scene in the drama, the third act in the drama. And that is Jesus is renewing us in the image of God. That's the scene we're living in now if we are Christians. Right now, Christ is at work renewing us, restoring us in the image and the likeness of God. So when we talk about the fact that we're saved, or we talk about the fact that we are redeemed, it means more than just getting people to say the sinner's prayer and, quote, become Christians. The work of redemption includes restoring what was lost in the fall of humanity into sin. It includes restoring us to the image and the likeness of God. Here's my obligatory Wakanda reference. You remember that scene where Killmonger (laughs) is in the museum looking at the artifacts. And the lady sort of misattributes an artifact to maybe 7th century Benin or some such thing. And Killmonger points out, no, you got that wrong. It's actually from Wakanda. It's made of vibranium. But you can't tell it looking at it. It's all rusty and corroded, right? It's been centuries in some field and now in a museum. And you remember uh, Klaus comes in and, and Klaus takes his arm made of vibranium, you know, the weapon from Wakanda, and, and he sort of vibrates the thing really fast. And what happens? All the rust and dust and corrosion are stripped away, and you get to see the thing shining for the vibranium that it is. Jesus... It's better than Klaus <laughs> and better than Killmonger. <laughs> Jesus comes into the world to shake loose that corruption and rust and contamination until we shine forth in the image and the likeness of God our creator. 
Look with me at two texts in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. But this is not the way you learned Christ. It's drawing a distinction between those who are sinners and living sinful lifestyles and those who are professing to be Christians. But this is not the way you learned Christ, which is an interesting phrase. It's the only place in Greek literature where people are said to learn a person. You have learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul says, now, I'm assuming you've heard the gospel and you believe the gospel, and if so, you've learned Christ. And if you've learned Christ, then you've not learned to live like the world. And so he says in verse 22, you've learned Christ, you've been taught now to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Notice, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if we've become Christians, something decisive has happened. We have taken off the old man and we've put on the new man. And that new man is not corrupt according to our sin nature. That new man is being created, verse 24. Now there's a recreation happening here. Has been created in true righteousness and holiness. We see a very similar thought in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul says there, do not lie to one another. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, notice, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what happened to you when you became a Christian? Christ took the old man off and clothed you with himself, the new man. And in that process, he began a decisive renewing of the image and likeness of God in your life, beloved. That's what he's doing right now. He's renewing things. And that's what he will do increasingly. Anthony Hokum, a theologian, wrote this about these passages. As God was the creator of man in the beginning, so God is also the creator of the new self or the new man believers have put on. This is God's work. As man was created in the image of God to begin with, so the new self that God has created for us is, notice, in accordance with God or like God. This is the part I like right here. Since the believer is not yet perfect, must be progressively renewed, Ephesians 4.23, we conclude that this renewal consists of a growing and ever-increasing likeness to God. The purpose of redemption is to restore the image of God in man. I like that next to the last sentence. We ain't there yet, but God ain't done yet. There is an ever-increasing restoration of the image and the likeness of God in your life, beloved, if you are a Christian. That's part of what it means to be redeemed. And the question is, do we think of ourselves this way? Do you define yourself as a new creature where the old things have passed away and the new things have come and do you understand yourself as a Christian to be in this process by God's power and grace of being restored more fully to the image and likeness of God. Christians sometimes like to write purpose statements and vision statements. 
don't know if you're one of those persons or Christians. It's not a bad practice at all. I wonder if your statement includes this truth. That your purpose in life, your most fundamental purpose, my most fundamental purpose in life is to image forth the likeness of God. That's why we remain. And if you're in Christ, that's why you've been saved. Which brings us to the fourth scene. So we saw the image was there at the creation. We saw that we corrupted the image. Number three, we saw that Christ is restoring the image. And number four, now that image will be complete in the consummation. In other words, when Jesus comes again, then that image will be perfected in all who believe and look to his coming. We see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. We're already God's children. And, and what we will be has not yet appeared. See, we're becoming something, and we haven't seen it yet, right? Now, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Or, or think, for example, of the text that we were reading in the call to worship and the assurance of parting, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's consider verses 47 to 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. The second man is from heaven. That's Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And those who are not yet Christians are earthly beings of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. We are like Christ now. In verse 89, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's guaranteed. What we are now becoming we will finally be when we see Jesus. The butterfly of God's beauty will finally break out of the cocoon of this human life and spread its wings and shine forth the glory of God in and through us. We'll go back to Hannah Anderson for a moment in her book, Made for More. She says, the paradigm is simple. God intends to reflect his identity through your identity. What he is, you will become. He is holy, you must be holy. He loves, so you must love. He forgives, so you must forgive. And because he is glorious, you must be glorified as well. That's what it is to be a Christian. One who's being renewed in the image of God on their way to glory, perfectly reflecting his likeness. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is our message for you. You are uniquely and wonderfully created in the image and likeness of God. You are precious. You have purpose in the world. You were designed to show forth the very beauty of the creator. Amen. I don't care what's happening in your life. I don't care how broken your life is. I don't care how messed up your life is. You are in the image and likeness of God. And God means to show the world through you what he's like. But now it means also we have to reckon with this sin problem, doesn't it? You can't keep putting that curtain over that image. You can't keep living in such a way as to block out the purpose for which you were made. You can't keep carrying on in things you know displease God because you are misrepresenting God and you are slandering the very person and the nature and the glory of God. Your sin is doing destruction to your soul. It is no friend to you. 
But there's a way to be free from sin. And it's through Jesus Christ. He died for your sin to pay the penalty that you owe for your sin. And he was raised three days later from the grave in order that you might no longer be clothed in that old man of sin, but in order that you might now be dressed in Jesus. That he would be your righteousness, that he would be your glory, that that he would restore you to the likeness and the image of God in which you were created. And the promise is everyone who trusts in Jesus, well, we get to look forward to that day when we will be just like Jesus. When we will see him and be transformed into that image and likeness. When we will enter into God's heaven and God's kingdom, where we will see his glory face to face and without any diminishment reflected back to him in our own person and being. Jesus came to make you new. Jesus came to restore you to the image and likeness of God, your creator. That's why you were made. Don't deny your purpose. Don't deny your creator. Turn to Jesus in faith. Follow him in faith. And he will begin to shake off the old stuff and bring forth that likeness and image in more perfect clarity. And you will live forever in his love and in his grace. If you want to know more about that, stick around. Talk with me after the service. Talk with your Christian friend who brought you. Talk to anybody who looks like they've seen, you know, uh, Black Panther. We will, <laughs> we, we will be glad to help you understand what it is to follow Jesus. And I, listen, I hope you understand. <laughs> we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take Jesus seriously. We, we're not big on ourselves and our image, but we are big on God's image seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And we want you to know him. We want you to know him above all things. So that's the image. That's the answer to the first question. We are to image forth God. We exist in his likeness. But now that brings us to a a second question. How do we project that image? How do we know that image when we see it? How do we know the likeness in sort of real life as we live day to day? If if this is the most important aspect of our identity, then the most important assignment of that identity is is sort of showing it forth. Again, I want to direct us to Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Verse 24 of Ephesians says this, put on a new self. Well, how do you do that? What is that new self like? It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness or in righteousness and holiness according to the truth. Colossians 3, verse 10, same kind of idea. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there are three ways that these texts tell us most clearly in the New Testament how the image of God shines forth in God's people. Number one, we see the image of God in a return to true knowledge. In a return to true knowledge. Get fancy for a moment there. The word there for knowledge is not just gnosis, but epigenosis. It means it's a deep, rich knowledge. It refers not merely to facts and intellect, but also something known by the heart and in the heart. Of course, man lost this knowledge in the garden. This refers most specifically to the knowledge of God himself. 
And in the sin of the garden, man was expelled, and, and this knowledge, this knowing God was, was broken in that way. And there's a rich irony here. Remember Satan's temptation in, in Genesis 3. God had given Adam and Eve one command, do not eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes to him and says this, the reason why God told you that is he knows that the moment you eat that, you'll be like him. Now what's the irony? They were already like him. They were already imaging forth the likeness and the, and, uh, of God. They were already made in his image. They've been tempted to a knowledge beyond what was proper to them. It's striking, beloved. You know there are things we are not meant to know? You know there are to be limits to human knowledge? Particularly moral limits to human knowledge? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Now, if we're not careful, we'll think, okay, that means we need to know everything and explore everything and dabble in a little bit of everything. But, but Paul goes on to say this, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Biblically speaking, mature Christian thinking is pure, it's clean, it's good. It is not to delight in the things that were forbidden in terms of evil. And beloved, do you know that there are limits not only to what we should know, but to how we should come to know them? We are meant to know what is good and right by obeying God's word. We are not meant to acquire knowledge through sin. That's what Adam and Eve did. They disobeyed God's word. They sinned in order to get a knowledge that was off limits. Listen, beloved, experience is not your best teacher, particularly with regard to sin. Experience is not our best teacher. Experience is our most expensive teacher. We learn those lessons because it hurt. But God's word is our best teacher. God's instruction is our best teacher, and we are the best students when we learn from God's word and acquire wisdom from his word, not when we go out there and break ourselves against his word. Amen. So we are meant actually to return to a true knowledge of God and to gain that knowledge in a true process, obedience to God's word. And so Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we know that text, right? We're not to be conformed any longer to this world, not to let the world squeeze us into its mold, but rather we are to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And how do we renew our minds? It's by coming to God's Word. That knowledge Christ gives to us in Himself. We come to know God. We come to know how to live for God. We come to think God's thoughts after Him. And we come to embrace the limits of knowledge that are good for us. But now there's something else here. We see the image of God in a return, not only to true knowledge, but we see the image of God in a return to true holiness. That's what we see at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. You remember Jesus saying in the Gospels that we are to be holy as he is holy. Well, that gets worked out not by our self-effort. There is effort in it. But it's the effort that comes as a result of God working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. 
It's the effort that comes as a result of union with Christ and of Christ's work in our life, renewing us to the image of our creator and the likeness of our creator. So this true holiness means, I think, that we have a holiness that's defined by the truth that is in Jesus Christ. In other words, our holiness, beloved, must reflect his holiness. I love the way J.C. Riles puts this. An Anglican bishop of so many years ago, he says, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. Okay, so, so holiness is not, I'm of one mind with God because I like to think of God this way. That, that ain't what Riles is saying. Holiness is, I'm of one mind with God because God has told me what he's like in his word. Okay, then he goes on to say, it is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in his world by the standard of his word. Holiness is when we adopt God's attitudes and thoughts about the world as our own attitudes and thoughts about the world. It isn't in the first place all about rules of do's and don'ts. In the first place, it's all about an attitude where we begin to think and to act and to feel the way God thinks and acts and feels. And the Bible tells us that without holiness, no man shall see God. That's how terribly important this is. And this is why I think the warning from A.W. Tozer is really helpful. This is what Tozer says. No man should desire to be happy who is not at the same time holy. He should spend his efforts in seeking to know and do the will of God, leaving to Christ the matter of how happy he should be. Ain't that good? Because we live in a world that's not only all about image, it's also all about happy. You do you. You know, whatever you feel like doing is what you should do in order to pursue happiness. And so as a consequence, we live in a world with more and more unhappy people. No, happiness is found in holiness, in the pursuit of God. And it's a dangerous thing to be happy in an unholy life. So Christ has come to restore us to true holiness. But now the third thing, how do we see this image? We see it in a return to true righteousness. That's there at the end of Ephesians 4, verse 24 as well. That word righteousness there is not about imputation. It's not about the ways in which we are declared righteous through faith in Christ. It includes that, but it's really an ethical use of the word righteous. It means we are upright, we are equitable, we are fair, we live justly in the world. The word righteousness there is in the same range of meaning as the English word justice. And it has to do with our relationship with our fellow men. The second table of the law. And often when the Bible describes God, because that's whose image we're showing, it pulls together both holiness and justice in the same breath. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy. How? In righteousness. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. 
Moses there breaks out in song, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So true holiness in the Bible goes together with true righteousness. Let me put it a different way. There's no way for us to claim to be holy without also being just if we're showing forth God's image because he's both things. However we think about what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, we must see from Christ's work of renewing us in that image that we are talking about moral and ethical categories. We show it in the way we live. We reveal his image in these moral and ethical categories of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Let me try to put this another way. No immoral position can be defended by appeals to the image of God. Now, to unpack that, I want to come to our third question. What does the image of God have to do with justice? So not only should the image of God be foundational to our personal identity, it must be foundational to how we treat other people. That's why the image of God becomes a theological foundation or basis for the pursuit of justice. In one sense, justice is recognizing that other people are image bearers and ought to be treated as such. That's all it is. But we need to be careful at this point, beloved. Because using the imago Dei, using the image of God as a basis for justice is actually a fairly complex idea. It requires some thinking. Because on the one hand, the image of God is the basis for some things that we might not like. And on the other hand, it's the basis for condemning some things that maybe we do like. So we got to think about this carefully. Let me use two examples from the Bible and one example just from sort of current events. The death penalty. We go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. See, it's tempting to say that because everyone is made in the image of God, then we should not have the death penalty. But Genesis 9, 6 makes it clear that it is precisely because everyone is made in the image of God that God does establish the death penalty. See, in a fallen, sin-corrupted world, one image-bearer may be killed by government. Many many scholars and commentators would understand in Genesis 9-6 a foundation for government. May be killed by government if they have unjustly shed the blood of another image-bearer. It's not what you would think. But sometimes you protect the image by taking the image. So the doctrine of the image of God cannot by itself, for example, be used to oppose the death penalty. The the doctrine may lead some of us to conclusions that we might struggle with at first. Now, I am not a proponent of our current practice of the death penalty. Not because I disagree with it in principle. The principle is clear right there in Genesis 9-6. But remember our definition of justice last week. That justice must also include, it must also include procedural justice, right? right? 
how you get to the outcome matters, and that you get there in a fair and equitable way matters. So I'm not a supporter of our current practice of the death penalty because in practice, there are so many injustices in how we administer it. In other words, because there's so many procedural failings, I think it's wise to call a moratorium on death sentences until those injustices are fixed. So the key question is, I'm just using this by way of example, and the example really, what I'm trying to illustrate is you have to wrestle with the Bible to apply it. You might choose a different uh, example, and you might come down differently on this example. I'm not trying to sort of get you to agree with the example, but to illustrate that we can't sort of in simplistic ways be grabbing onto proof text and then using it for whatever we think is justice, we're going to get ourselves into trouble, right? So the key question is, do you and I treat all human life as though though it's made in the image of God? That's what we need to be thinking through. Let me give you another example of why this requires careful reasoning. Let me take the example of speech. Speech. The image of God should inform how we talk to and how we talk about each other. James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Again, James there is describing the tongue, and the tongue is a metaphor for human speech. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers. He said it just like that. My brothers. These things ought not to be so. So James is making us in James 3 aware of the danger of our tongues. In verse 8, he calls our tongues a, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now that ought to make us all stop before we speak. Then he points out a hypocrisy. (laughs) The mouth we use on Sunday to praise God, we use at other times to curse people made in the image of God. Let me put it this way. You cannot recognize the image of God in worship and then slander that image in human relationships. James says these things ought not to be so. Now, here's what I think we can see going on in our day, when it comes to speech, in the name of justice. We can see a lot of people speaking with very harsh, angry, slanderous, libelous, and hateful tones and words. It's everywhere. You know what? Our sinful nature likes to speak that way. We like to tell people what's on our mind. We like to get stuff off our chest. We delight to let them have it. And then we justify it, don't we? They had it coming. They, they deserved it. You should have heard what they said. You should have seen what they did. And, and we just give ourselves fuel if we're not careful for speaking more and more of that deadly poison that James says is in our tongue. We, we give more and more room to that restless evil coming out of our mouths. We might even say that, that, that this way of speaking, this sinful way of speaking, feel, just, it just feels right to us sometimes. But if we speak to others as if they're made in the image of God, then that means 
that some of our speech gets challenged and some of it gets ruled out when we remember that they are bearing the likeness of our Creator. We're meant to see through them like a window onto God. So the key question might be put something like this. That you and I speak to and about others as if we're speaking to God or God's image. That's the standard biblically. Now, that does not mean that there is not something called righteous indignation. There is. But we've got to be careful with anger. But remember what is said in James chapter 1, just a couple verses earlier, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and what else? Slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we are so tempted to think that our anger is a reflection of God's righteousness. In a fallen world, it almost never is. And we ought to be careful about how we speak, remembering that people are made in the image of God. That's been a slow, deeper lesson for me over the last eight or nine months. It's trying to bring God's word to bear on Thabiti's tongue and Thabiti's speaking. and Trying to get a sense of holiness and righteousness and knowledge in here, in this little pink flesh. And I suggest that it's, it's yes, it's been a Thabiti problem. I think it's a, it's a world problem. And it might be a problem for some others of us. We just need to be more careful if we're going to be just. So let me give you a third example. And all I'm trying to do is illustrate how complex this is and why as Christians, we can't do justice by sound bites. We, we can't do justice at the speed of Twitter. We, we have to do some long, slow thinking. At least we have to do that thinking before we tweet. Right? Uh, so that the tweet reflects that long, slow thinking. Right? So let me give you a third example. Um, I sometimes see advocates of same-sex marriage and advocates of Christians who, um, who, the Christians who care about people living with same-sex attraction make an appeal to the image of God as the basis for um, same-sex marriage or as the basis for uh, hate crime legislation, protecting persons with same-sex attraction with hate crime legislation. The argument goes something like this. Uh, it says that, that these persons who are struggling with same-sex attraction are made in God's image. Right? And then it, the next step is it goes on to claim to say, okay, then based on that, we should grant them the right to marry or um, pass legislation that, that protects them from hate crimes. Now, particularly where same-sex marriage is concerned, to take that position, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to define the image of God in a way that is inconsistent with the moral categories of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And number two, you have to define justice in ways that are inconsistent with truth, right? So Ephesians 4.24 doesn't allow us to do that, right? Because it says we're being created in the image of our creator. We're being renewed in his likeness. And it tells us according to true righteousness and true holiness. So at this point, I don't think those advocates are thinking very precisely and carefully. It is absolutely the case, unequivocally without doubt, and we should shout it the loudest, 
that people who struggle with same-sex attraction are made in the image of God. They bear his likeness. They have dignity and worth on that basis. No doubt about that. And so, personally, I'm fine if legislators want to pass legislation that protects persons with same-sex attraction from hate crimes. Because I think the hate crime is an assault against the image of God and the likeness of God in all persons. I'm fine with that. But when I think about the image of God and its sort of moral categories and how it's displayed in us, I am opposed to gay marriage. Why would I be opposed to gay marriage? Because that marriage would be normalizing sin. And the normalizing of sin, any sin, does not actually affirm the image of God in persons. It actually denies it. It actually contradicts it. So if we're Christians and what we want is for people to come to Christ and for people to image forth God as clearly as possible, then we we take this doctrine and on the one hand we say, let's use this doctrine to protect life and affirm that people have dignity because they're made in the image of God. But then we take this doctrine and say, well, what does it really mean? How's it really shown? Well, it's shown in true righteousness and true holiness. And so for their own good and for our own good, we oppose those things that are not true righteousness and true holiness. So as Christians, we we just got to think slowly and work our ways through what the Bible tells us and illustrates for us in the applications of these truths. And that's that's as true with the image of God as it is anything else. So let's land the plane. We have to be truth people. And we have to allow truth, the truth of the Bible particularly, to define our understanding of righteousness and justice. And when truth defines justice, then we must pursue whatever path that truth reveals to us. We have to go down that road. To do less than that is to fail to faithfully image forth the God who created us and is recreating us in his likeness through Jesus Christ. And so again, to go back to a question I asked earlier, do you personally and do we as a church have a vision for living out the rest of our Christian lives as people being recreated in the likeness and image of God and people who are meant to show forth true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness? I hope you do. If you don't, I hope you'll maybe take that question and press it forward in your own reflection. And I pray that the Lord would give us grace to show forth his glory more and more uh, in all the difficult contexts we find ourselves in and certainly in the clear situations we find ourselves in. It's a marvelous thing to be made in God's image. It is an indescribable thing that the God of all creation has purposed to show himself in and through us. May he give us grace to get out of the way so that his shine comes through. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for minds, renewed minds, that come from the study of your word. And we thank you that your word is rich, and that it's sufficient, that by it, the man of God and the woman of God are thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Only give us a deeper appetite for your word, a greater hunger for your word. And Lord, press your word into our hearts uh, so thoroughly, into every corner and every crevice, and and fill our hearts so thoroughly with your word that it, it shapes and transforms our mind, and it governs our speech, and it helps us to treat our brothers and sisters made in your image and our neighbors made in your image the way your image deserves. Make us people who protect life, human life, because it's made in your likeness. And help us to be people who pursue justice for others because they're made in your likeness. Do this for your glory and for our great joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.